1967, the Freedom of Information Act was passed by the U.S. Congress and signed into law by President Lyndon Johnson. Barring certain types of exemptions, the FOIA allows for American citizens to request access to records from federal agencies. Similar laws exist around the world, though each differ based on their respective countries' political and cultural situations. Regardless, the freedom of information is an unequivocal good, right? This is Caitlin Phillips with the Oxford Comment. Last episode, we talked about open access and the importance of the accessibility of academic research for the betterment of society. This episode, we wish to discuss government transparency and the flow of information from those in power to the citizens who ultimately give them power. Our two case studies for the freedom of information around the world will be India and the European Union, one an emerging market and the world's largest democracy, and the other an intergovernmental organization that has experienced its own series of crises over the last few years. Our first guest is Manchu Jha, lecturer with the South Asia Institute at Heidelberg University in Germany, and the author of Capturing Institutional Change, The Case of the Right to Information Act in India. All right, welcome everyone to the Oxford Comment. I'm Caitlin Phillips, and we're here today with Manchu Jha. Uh, could you introduce yourself for us, please? Uh, thank you, Caitlin. It's good to be here. Uh, my name is Himanshu Jha. I'm teaching at the Department of Political Science uh, at the South Asia Institute, Heidelberg University. Excellent. Um, so you're here today to talk a little bit about the Right to Information Act. Um, so what is the Right to Information Act? Uh, how did it come to be in India? Um, sort of a place that's known for you know, a culture of secrecy. Um, how, how did it come to be? So um, in 2005, the Indian Parliament promulgated uh, what is known as the Right to Information Act. What act does, it essentially provides uh, citizens a legal regime to access information from the state or public authorities. So the law is popularly known as RTI, and it is revolutionary and redefines the state-citizen linkages in multiple ways. Now, essentially, uh, you know, institutions are norms that undergird organizations, and they're path-dependent, and uh, have this tendency of uh, stubbornly persisting on the historical landscape. Scholars view and often view institutions to be path dependent on history, and therefore they are change resistant. Norm of secrecy also persisted in India right since independence and was path dependent on laws such as the Official Secrets Act of 1923, known as OSA, uh, Civil Services Conduct Rules of 1964, uh, Sections 1, 2, 3 of the Indian Evidence Act, and Manual and Office Procedures of Government, government of India. And these laws had weakened the citizens' right to know. OSA uh, 1923 was essentially path-dependent on the laws taking shape in Great Britain during the two wars and on the norm of secrecy that emanated from the need to safeguard the national interest during the two wars. What happened post-independence in 1947 is that OSA was just automatically adopted as a law within the newly independent Indian government by just merely removing all references of Great Britain and operationalizing the act as it is. But instead of reforming this culture of secrecy, the OSA was actually amended again in 1967 to an even stronger version after the India-China War of 1962 and India-Pakistan War of 1965 by adding espionage and sharing of information to outsiders as a legal offense. So for instance, Clause C, of Section 3.1 was amended to classify all documents as secret or top secret. 
executive powers against the parliament not to share information were amended to be stronger and further intensified under Section 5. So with a stronger version of the OSA, governance would now be carried out in complete secrecy. Secrecy was further reinforced through other laws that I just talked about, such as the Civil Services Conduct Rules 1964, which prohibited the bureaucracy from sharing official information without proper authorization. As a result, the norm of secrecy took firm root, both formally and informally within the state apparatus. The logic emerged within the state that official information is the key to national security and state interests. Bureaucracy also viewed information as a source of power. So giving out information, for instance, from within the state was in a sense giving away the power that bureaucracy held or still holds uh, hidden in those government files. All this changed with the enactment of right to information, which signifies a kind of a norm shift from secrecy that I just talked about to the norm of openness, representing something that I call institutional change. So when the persisting path of change-resisting institution changes, for scholars, it poses a puzzle. In my view, right to information presents such a puzzle. What explains this move towards institutional change? Why did the state decide to turn the page and change an institution set up in colonial times and amended to an even stronger version in 1967? The puzzle deepens. Indian state is often viewed to be dominated and captured by an exploitative nexus of vested interests. So why would the state initiate a change in the legal framework of the information regime, which would be used variously to highlight and expose the very nexus set to govern these institutions? For instance, a group of scholars have looked at the role of people's movement or social movement, or the role of elite networks and broad-based civil society coalitions or alliances with their connections and access to the political and permanent executive, taking advantage of the political opportunity with the new political party coming, coming to form the government. These dominant narratives and explanations were accepted unquestionably by the academia, the political parties, and the government agencies alike. I have just recently published a book on the promulgation of right to information calling uh, the capturing institutional change, the case of the Right to Information Act in India by the Oxford University Press, and this book, based primarily on archival materials, internal government documents, presents an alternative explanation and problematizes these dominant narratives about how Right to Information Act was enacted. So by bringing in new historical evidence, I have tried to set the history straight. I show that uh, Right to Information was path-dependent on ideas of openness that emerged from within the state right since independence, even though the norm of secrecy was locked in within the system. This created what I call an ideational churning between still nascent and emerging ideas of openness, which emerged on the fringes, and the nested and systematically internalized norm of secrecy. In this book, I argue that an endogenous policy discourse on enacting legislation on access to information had begun early. It incrementally evolved, and after surviving many political challenges, reached a tipping point in 2005. In the first phase, the norm of openness sprouted on the fringes of the nested secrecy regime. The pro-secrecy regime was primarily of the ruling party and mainstream bureaucracy. In the second phase, ruling party support brought the idea of openness into the mainstream, gaining enough critical mass to reach a tipping point in 2005. Now, how can we understand a tipping point? The tipping point has three distinct characteristics. First, changes are evolutionary, gradual, and largely endogenous. Second, 
by carefully tracing the institutional path, one should be able to delineate small interlinked changes accumulated over time. Third, changes continue to evolve over time until they reach a certain threshold. Initially, these ideas on openness emerged gradually and incrementally as part of opposition politics and were sporadically mentioned in the government committees and moved from the policy periphery to the center stage, eventually becoming part of the mainstream of politics. This is how the Right to Information Act in India came about, in my opinion. However, this is not to claim that social networks did not matter. Had the ideas within the state not moved favorably towards the norm of openness, the state would have dealt with the same social network very differently. That's why the state thinking and ideas within the state were so important. So this case of institutional change persuades us to take ideas seriously. And secondly, this body of work shows that gradualism, path dependence, and history matters. So that was the why of the Right to Information Act, but let's get to the how. So how does it work? Can anyone request information um, and how uh, can it be accessed? Because India is a federal state, Right to Information covers the central state and the local governments. And all bodies owned or controlled or substantially financed by the state, including non-governmental organizations, NGOs are covered under right to information. Interestingly, this right has, includes information relating to any private body which can be accessed by any public authority. And information is specifically defined as any material in any form, including information such as records, documents, memos, emails, opinions, uh, press releases, circulars. So anything which is happening inside the public authority can be divulged under Right to Information Act. And so this act is actually quite elaborate. It, it does not only include information, it also includes inspection of work, documents, record. You can actually take notes, extracts, or certified copies of documents or records. You can also take certified samples of material. So for instance, there is a material which is being used to build a road. You can actually take certified samples of the material being used to build a road. And you can obtain information in any other electronic form or electronic mode. It also contains specific items of information which are to be exempted. So where disclosure is prejudicially affects the sovereignty and integrity of India, the security related information, strategic, scientific or economic interest of the state, such information is exempted from right to information. An important implementation link in the right to information regime are the public information officers. Each department ministry at all levels are supposed to have a public information officer. They are popularly known as PIOs. PIO in each department or agency receives the request and provides the information. This provision of information is to be provided within a stipulated time frame of 30 days with few exceptions. So for example, information has to be provided within 48 hours where life or liberty is involved, or 35 days where request is to be given by the assistant PIO, or 40 days where the third party information is uh, involved. Right to information also gives this provision of appeals. If the information is denied or delayed, you can file the first appeal to the senior within that department or the ministry. Or even then, when if there is no information, uh, you can actually file a second appeal with an information commission. So that's another stipulated uh, body within the act, which is an independent information commission at the central and the state level. 
which is an appellate authority to oversee the functioning of the act. And it has various powers under the act. Information commissioner essentially is a quasi-judicial body to give it an autonomy. And the most interesting aspect about this act is that penalties can be imposed by information commission on the PIOs or officer asked to assist the PIOs. So for example, for an unreasonable delay, for illegitimate refusal to accept application or denial or knowingly providing false information, uh, rupees 25,000 fine can be imposed on the, on the officers. The important dimensions, such as the provision for proactive disclosure of information by the public authorities. So cluster of information can be voluntarily uh, divulged by departments and ministries and put up on their website. The act also talks about the importance of record keeping, because how can you have information if the record keeping is not proper? The right to information also has deep linkages with other rights-based regimes in India, such as the National Rural Employment Guarantee Act. So you shared some examples of things that you may want to know. I mean, knowing what your road is made of uh, seems like something that could be really important uh, to someone. What are some of the pros and cons of this uh, act? Are, are there cons? Let me start by discussing the pros first. RTI, as I already um, mentioned, redefines the state citizenship linkages in new ways on at least three counts. First, the Right to Information Act replaces the previously persisting norm of secrecy by laying out a practical regime of openness that enables citizens to access information under the control of public authorities. So it represents rearrangements in the rules of the game, a norm shift from secrecy to openness. Secondly, whereas other rights-based legislations promulgated during the same time, such as the right to work or what is called the Mahatma Gandhi National Rural Employment Guarantee Act or the Right to Education Act represent a policy continuity from previous policies or schemes, Right to Information Act represents a complete policy departure from the previous regime. And this is to say that there was not even a single policy that allowed access to information from state or public authorities. Thirdly, the change is also de jure. In the case of Right to Information Act, the scope of fundamental rights provided in the Constitution was expanded and redefined. So Article 19 1A of the Constitution of India, which grants freedom of expression and speech, was interpreted as inherently containing the right to know as a fundamental right. Thus, the sharing of information held by public authorities, which earlier was a legal offense, is now a justiciable right under the new regime. How is it being used? So a report by uh, Transparency India estimated that 24.4 million right to information applications were filed at both the central and the state level between 2005 and 2016. And in addition to seeking accountability, information through RTI was instrumental in revealing both grand and petty corruption at the central and the state level. And so for sure, RTI has changed the culture of governance. My own research on implementation of RTI has shown that the relations between the information seeker and the information, given, uh, information giver is often tumultuous. So in this case, the norm of secrecy as a perpetuating bureaucratic culture still seems to be the guiding norm for some segments of the state administration. This is evident from the reluctance displayed by the local officials to part with the information. Another reason for this reluctance is also because RTI is an accountability tool and has been instrumental in exposing the corrupt nexus at the grassroots, revealing both petty and grand corruption. In fact, there have been numerous cases where the RTI users have been threatened or even killed as they sought information, which in all likelihood would have revealed corruption. 
So there was an enactment by the Parliament of India of Whistleblowers Act in 2011, which may arrest this backlash against the RTI activists, but its implementation is at best patchy. Institutional progression of RTI is hobbled by large-scale pendency, lack of information commissioners, and inactive information commissions at both the central and the state level. These are some of the cons. Another dimension is this tension between the information givers and the information seekers. On the one hand, the information seekers are of the view that officials deliberately delay the information, refuse it on false excuses, and have a general tendency to discourage the RTI applicant. On the other hand, the information givers view the RTI users as lacking awareness, asking vague RTI queries, and often asking for information which with an ulterior motive rather than in public interest. This friction was clearly evident during my field interviews. And one comes across bizarre incidents of alleged denial of information. In one such instance in 2009, a farmer who had asked about the record for distribution of kerosene through RTI in his own district was asked to pay INR 10 million to get relevant documents towards the cost of photocopying and so on and so forth. So some of this sounds familiar um, as someone from the US. Um, what, what similarities does the RTI have with um, laws around the world um, involving secrecy and information and, and you know, people's rights to know? You know, globally, one can see uh, proliferation in transparency laws. And this is evident from the fact that between 1990 and 2018, 125 countries have promulgated laws or ordinances around freedom or right to information. And in these, indeed, this pattern point towards global norm diffusion around transparency laws. How can we locate India's right to information within this trend? Firstly, the global norms informed and influenced the ongoing discourse at the national level, along with considerable demonstrative influence in what I have termed as norm demonstration. This process can be clearly seen in internal government discussions where worldwide trend of promulgation of access to information was cited in number of internal government reports and background notes to justify a similar legislation in India. So for example, the Shori Committee, which was constituted to examine the possibility of promulgating a legislation on access to information in 1997, viewed transparency and access to information as a prerequisite for democracy. So similarly, worldwide trend of having access to information laws was often cited in a background note prepared for the government committees. So first is non-demonstration. Secondly, there was a process of norm localization where global norms were drawn upon and adapted at the national level in line with the ongoing policy discourse and processes at the national level. For example, the same Shori committee, which was constituted in 1997, while considering the disclosure clause, unanimously agreed that inter and intra-departmental noting should be excluded from the disclosure as it would affect the decision-making of the civil servants, while citing the case of the United States of America, where this clause only applies to files where, which are in pre-decisional phase. Similarly, on the question of whether the draft of uh, Freedom of Information Bill should have an overriding clause as against the other laws, the committee examined the FOI laws of the US, Canada, and Australia, which contained such a clause. So in yet another example of drawing upon the legal framework from other countries, FOI laws of USA, Canada, and Australia were taken into consideration on the question of whether to include private bodies within the ambit of the law, which were finally excluded from the law. 
and FOIA legislations of USA, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand were again drawn upon to shape the clauses related to the disclosure of information. You said that you conducted some interviews. Can you discuss a particularly interesting case and you know what the outcome? You know, did they get the information they were asking for? Yeah. So let me um, start by telling you a story of the use of right to information and citizen empowerment. In 2014, when I was doing my field interviews. I met a person called Mazloom Nadaf. Uh, he's a resident of a village called Machdi, uh, located in poor eastern state of India called Bihar. This state is actually notorious for its nexus of corrupt bureaucrats, politicians, dominant class and caste groups run deep. There's a governance crisis, there's a law and order problem. So it's a state which is not actually a best governed state in India. Mazloom is a rickshaw puller. So by the government's definition of poverty, Mazloom is below the poverty line and therefore eligible for the, a scheme called Indra Awas Yojana, a government program that aims to lend money to the rural poor to build a house. Now, although the local government office listed Muslim as a beneficiary, he was asked to pay a bribe of rupees 5,000. It's not much, but Muslim just could not afford it and was made to run around for five years. In 2005, the Right to Information Act was promulgated to provide citizens a legal regime. And in 2006, about a year after the RTI Act was enacted, a local lawyer advised Muslim to file an RTI application and helped him to ask the concerned department three questions. So he asked the department, explain why he was not allotted a house under the Indra Awas Yojana, the government scheme, list the beneficiaries of the scheme for the previous five years, and certify that he was economically better off than beneficiaries in his village. Even before he received the information sought, the block development officer, the officer in charge, came to his village and handed him the check for the first installment of his loan. Later, he was given an award for showcasing how the RTI Act benefits the poor. However, Muslim did not follow up on this RTI application as he received the first installment of the loan, which was his objective in the first place to file the RTI. Muslim told me, and I quote, neither my award nor my RTI made me rich. I'm still poor. However, it made me Muslim bhai overnight. Bhai means brother, and it's considered a respectful way of addressing someone in that part of India. Clearly, seeking accountability from the state gave Muslim a sense of empowerment, entitlement, and dignity. And one comes across many such instances of citizen empowerment and RTI use, especially at the grassroots. In addition to exposing the petty corruption at the local level, RTI was instrumental in exposing grand corruption as well. So, for example, all the multi-million dollar scams in India, such as the 2G Spectrum scam or Commonwealth Games scam in 2010, were exposed through papers procured by some activists under the RTI. Wow, that's a really incredible story. You know, just the power of asking to enact change, uh, not even needing the information in the end, um, is really incredible. So what do you see the future of RTI in India looking like? RTI has definitely opened a space for accountability between the state and citizens. If you see it an accountability continuum, one end is of the information givers and the other end are the information seekers. And as I have already mentioned, the relationship between the two is often tumultuous. There have been attempts to weaken the law. After the enactment of Right to Information Act, all the governments across party lines have attempted to dilute the law. Political parties have constantly resisted coming under the ambit of right to information. There have been a number of aborted attempts to amend the RTI Act, first in 2006, second in 2009, and the third in 2012, 
mainly regarding the disclosure of file notings of the bureaucrats on executive files. In 2013, an amendment to the Right to Information Act was proposed to grant immunity to the political parties. And perhaps one of the most powerful and equally contested dilutions to the RTI came 14 years after it was promulgated. The amendment was passed by both the upper and the lower house in July 2019 to the RTI Act, which entails two changes on tenure and emoluments of the information commissioners. The first amendment is that the fixed five-year tenure of the information commissioners will now be prescribed by the central government. Second, salaries, allowances, and other related benefits will also be stipulated by the central government. So principal opposition to these amendments is that it will take away the autonomy of the information commissioners and put them in greater control under the state. This will impact the adjuratory role of the information commissions, who are supposed to act as independent and neutral regulators of transparency in information regime. RTI amendment bill was neither referred to the parliamentary standing committee nor put in the public domain for wider consultation, as is the norm for bills introduced in the parliament. What will be the impact of these amendments? So ever since the inception of Right to Information Act, it was often the norm that the information commissioners at both the central and the state level were former bureaucrats. There was always a likelihood that the commissioners would be sympathetic to their genus and would often shield the executive. This is evident in the minuscule level of penalties imposed on the airing officials. Indeed, citizens and the activists have constantly opposed the capture of information regime by the bureaucrats. Clearly, even prior to the 2019 amendments, the information regime was susceptible to greater control from the state since the commissioners were formerly part of the state. Despite this, Right to Information Act has been extensively used across the country. According to a modest estimate, in 2018-19 itself, more than 1.3 million RTI applications were filed by the Indian citizens, despite the amendments. My own study of the state of Bihar shows that against all odds, Right to Information Act as an institution has substantially progressed, evident in the extensive use of right to information. And based on these field insights, I'm inclined to argue that institutional change is both de jure and de facto, as the recent dilutions have not countermanded the norm of change from previously locked-in norm of secrecy to openness. Constitutionally granted rights such as right to information cannot be withdrawn, but it can be consciously blunted, as we have already seen in the 2019 amendment. At the same time, initiatives are perceptible at the sub-national level, even in the wake of 2019 amendments. So, for instance, in the state of Rajasthan, which is in the north of India, the state and the social actors have ideationally collaborated to conceptualize and launch something called public information portal and a mobile app, which gives access to real-time information about various public policy programs in the state. Similarly, much before Rajasthan, Bihar, a poor state, introduced an ICT-enabled call center called Jankari in 2007, enabling citizens to file an RTI application by placing a call to the call center. In the absence of institutional change, it could not have been possible to have these governance innovations, to seek or voluntarily divulge information from within the state. Legal and policy regimes are seldom perfectly executed on the ground. Contestations are omnipresent. Nevertheless, institutional change in the form of right to information has bestowed a legal right to the citizens to demand transparency and accountability from the state. It is in this vein that after the 2019 amendment, a citizens group called the National Campaign for People's Right to Information in response have launched a national campaign, which is called, and I quote, use RTI to save RTI. 
urging citizens to constantly seek information from the state. The institutional progression is not complete. It is at best partial and still evolving. Despite this, the institutional change that grants citizens the right to information has led to its extensive use and has in turn pressurized the hesitant public authorities to grant citizens their rights. And despite their hesitancy, the bureaucracy is always mindful of the RTI in its daily functionings. So similar to the ideational churning that I have traced to explain the evolution of Right to Information Act, yet another churning is taking place between the citizens who seek information and the public authorities. Manshu, thank you so much for walking us through all of this. You know, I think that the more obviously that you talk about it, the more people understand it and realize what good it can actually do, I think, um, you know, the better. So I'm so glad that you, we were able to come on with us today. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Caitlin. It was a pleasure talking to you. Our second guest is Vivian A. Schmidt, Professor of European Integration, International Relations, and Political Science at Boston University. She's the author of Europe's Crisis of Legitimacy, Governing by Rules and Ruling by Numbers in the Eurozone. I'm here today with Vivian Schmidt. Vivian, could you introduce yourself for us? Yes, and thank you. Delighted to be here. I'm a professor of international relations and political science in the Pardee School of Global Studies at Boston University. Um, I work on Europe for the most part, uh, European integration, uh, European institutions and democracy, European political economy. I'm also recently working on the rise of populism in a kind of transatlantic perspective uh, with a Guggenheim grant, but I'm here to talk to you really about my book, Europe's Crisis of Legitimacy, Governing by Rules and Ruling by Numbers in the Eurozone, and of course, we'll relate that book to major questions of transparency. So let's, let's start off with some definitions and, and just some basic information here. So what is Europe's crisis of legitimacy, as you kind of termed it? Um, and then how does it relate to government transparency and, and the flow of information between citizens and government? So Europe's crisis of legitimacy was essentially about the way in which European member states and European institutional actors responded to the crisis, the sovereign, its sovereign debt crisis. Rather than finding innovative solutions, they ended up what I call governing by rules and ruling by numbers in the Eurozone. And this put democratic legitimacy at risk. If we ask, you know, if you ask what is legitimacy, you can think about it in two ways. One is as a governing authority, which is based in public consent and trust. And the other is considering legitimacy in terms of governing activities. And this is what I call output legitimacy, which talks about policy effectiveness and performance. Input legitimacy, which is about citizen representation, participation, as well as elites political responsiveness. And the final one is throughput or procedural legitimacy, which is based on efficacy, accountability, transparency, inclusiveness, and openness. So here, of course, in this podcast, we're talking about transparency. And that was really the major problem with regard to the EU's response to the Eurozone crisis. Essentially, what's, the crisis starts, and in a kind of stylized view using these conceptions of legitimacy, EU leaders assumed all they needed to do was double down on the rules 
procedural legitimacy, and they would get good performance, output legitimacy, so they didn't need to ask the people. Well, shortly, within sort of the period of two years as this crisis was continuing to rage, economic performance deteriorated, politics became increasingly toxic, increasing rise of populism, and that's when by 2012, crisis starts in 2010, beginning in 2012, EU leaders start reinterpreting the rules. But they do so by stealth, without admitting it. This is a major problem of transparency, as well as accountability. The result is that although the kind of output legitimacy performance improved, citizens, it still didn't work. There were further problems of legitimacy because, in part, by not admitting it, Southern Europeans felt oppressed, even when accommodated, while Northern Europeans felt deceived regardless, i.e., the lack of transparency ended up being a tremendous problem for the Eurozone. And by the time they recognized that this was a problem, they started telling the truth that, in fact, they were becoming more flexible. They were interpreting the rules. This was by 2015. The damage had already been done in terms of public perceptions, as well as interrelationships amongst EU actors. So within the European Union, what kind of um, sort of transparency, right, does it offer its citizens? And then what happens when that's maybe in conflict with the laws of individual countries? So if the EU is saying we can give you this information, is there ever a time when, you know, an individual country is saying, you know, no, that this doesn't really, you know, work for us? Yeah, I don't think we can really talk about it quite this way. The EU offers a tremendous amount of transparency, at least in terms of, and here we have to ask, which EU actors am I talking about? The European Commission, which is the executive uh, or bureaucratic executive, essentially basically puts almost everything online. It's tremendously transparent. And since 2000, it's focused on increasing transparency. Now, essentially this means there's a tremendous amount of information available and perhaps too much, so much so that one doesn't even know where to look. Generally, that kind of transparency does not come into conflict with the laws of individual countries because generally what the Commission puts online has to do with the EU laws and agreements that individual member states, of course, have already agreed to. Where transparency can become a problem is, for example, in when the member states debate in the, Euro in, in, in the European Council when the member states debate in the European Council, their meetings are not open. They're essentially carried out in secret. Now, this can be understandable. Uh, if you want to reach agreements amongst 27 member states, it's very hard to make this open and transparent. But what it does mean is that because they say and they debate and they negotiate and they bargain in private, and reach agreements, what happens is they come out of those agreements, those sessions, and then they have press conferences, and each member state leader essentially tells the national press whatever they want, regardless of whether they actually held that position inside the meeting. Because obviously, all of these leaders compromised, 
But when they come out, the British, obviously they're no longer part of it, but they were the ones who always came out and said, we've kept our red lines. The French would normally come out and say, we led the discussion. And the Germans would say, oh, we got a good compromise. So what, what you see is that it, it often what you got was a kind of lack of transparency from member state leaders. Another problem, which may have to do with conflict, not with the laws of the individual countries, but expectations, is that as often as not, member state leaders would blame the European Union for policies that were unpopular at the national level. And they would take the credit for any positive policies without ever saying that these came from the EU. Of course, that leads to a situation in which in many countries, member state leaders never actually told much of the truth about the good things that the EU was doing, simply noting the things that were unpopular and blaming the EU, which in no small way actually contributed to the rise of anti-European views, anti-EU or Eurosceptic views that were picked up and magnified by Eurosceptic uh, populist parties. So can you give me a, a particular or a specific um, instance where maybe a single European government, you know, was maybe at odds with either its citizens or, or with the, the general, you know, European Union over, you know, the accessibility of information? A major problem in the Eurozone crisis uh, occurred with uh, the so-called program countries, those countries that got into trouble financially because they were subject to market attacks and had to agree to what were called conditionality programs. This was under the so-called Troika, where the Eurogroup of finance ministers was involved in pushing member states to harsh austerity and structural reforms in the context of these uh, conditionality programs. And here, the Eurogroup of finance ministers was completely unaccountable and intransparent in this context. And the lack of transparency also meant that as they were dealing with member state leaders, they would essentially push the leaders to, to, to do certain things, cut pensions, crush unions, um, and a range of other things. And here, the, no one could know this. It was completely intransparent. So that what you got is member state governments, in some cases, protested. This is particularly the case of Yanis Varoufakis in the third Greek bailout 2015. So you did get protest from member states about the lack of transparency and all. But in other cases from member states, the national government thought, hmm, what a great opportunity to blame the EU for the kinds of policies we ourselves would like to do. This occurred in particular with conservative governments in countries like Spain. So I guess what, what we're talking about is it's the EU at odds with the member states, but the member state leaders in some cases taking advantage of the kind of the situation in which they were to impose harsher programs than even the Eurogroup necessarily pushed for. So complicated, messy, 
but suggesting a lack of transparency all around that then again led to increasing frustration, anger, popular anger at the EU, but also at the national government. This is also why in many cases we saw the erosion of support for mainstream parties and the rise of anti-system parties. So it really seems like the sort of member states are taking advantage of this lack of transparency, right? Because these decisions and because these discussions are sort of behind closed doors, they really have an opportunity, you know, you've said it a few times, to blame the EU for things that they want to put forward because these discussions are, are closed. So what do you perhaps see as being maybe the future, um, you know, of transparency? Do you think that transparency is going to be important for the continuation of the EU? Yeah, great question. I think what we can see is that from 2015 and on, EU member state leaders, the European Commission, and others recognized that the lack of transparency and all of the other things that they were doing were highly problematic. And you began to see incremental changes. The Commission became more transparent about the fact that it was indeed reinterpreting the rules as it reinterpreted the rules. But importantly, in the COVID-19 crisis, I would argue that the lessons have been learned, although there was a sort of an initial hiccup, an initial moment when it looked like the Eurozone crisis all over again in many different ways, not simply in transparency, but lack of accountability, no action, and all the rest, very quickly what you got was uh, member states and the EU itself becoming much more transparent about what they were doing and more innovative. They did not go back to uh, creating programs for the countries in trouble. On the contrary, they created the new Resilience and Recovery Fund that provided grants to all member states in trouble. In many cases, these were the same countries that had been in trouble during the Eurozone crisis. But rather than imposing harsh austerity and structural reform on them, they proposed massive grants to help everyone in the EU, but certainly uh, Southern European member states in particular, to move forward through money for investment in the green transition, the digital transformation, as well as the fight against inequality. So all of that's tremendously important. And it was done transparently with arguments that said, you know, we're all in this together. So uh, to my mind, lessons were learned and the COVID-19 crisis, I think is a sort of a, a, a new beginning in many ways, sort of the, it really shut the door on the Eurozone crisis and on many of the problems that the Eurozone crisis created or the responses to the Eurozone crisis created. That said, uh, the COVID-19 crisis creates it, a whole range of, of new problems and new challenges. So if you were to ask me, well, what about transparency for the member states? I'd say, well, masks, just as in the U.S., uh, problems in that initially, and this is from the uh, health authorities, initially they said, everyone said no masks are not necessary. But they were doing that not because masks weren't necessary, 
They were saying that because masks were in short supply and they didn't want everyone to panic buy. This is a problem in the US as much as the EU. Shortly thereafter, however, what we saw in the EU was a general commitment to saying everyone needs to wear masks in contrast to the kind of polarization that we saw in the US between those people who argued no masks, you know, freedom and liberty versus those people said, wait a minute, not wearing a mask can jeopardize the health of others. In the EU, once there was a recognition that everyone should wear masks, that message went out everywhere at the EU level and at the national level. And there was very little of the kind of polarization and angry, we won't wear mask kinds of responses that you got in the US. So in that way, one might argue that the that even in the context of COVID and mask wearing, as for vaccines, really there are differences amongst member states as to how they're doing the rollout, how well they're doing the rollout, et cetera. So no generalizations there. Well, thank you, Vivian. This was really interesting. I think this is a very clear example, you know, the idea of the EU and how it functions of why transparency is important um, and the ways that behind closed doors can be harmful. You know, you sort of said like the, the perception from the citizens is what changed a lot. Um, and then would perhaps change the need for transparency. You know, the people were feeling less, uh, I don't know, they're feeling less connected to the EU and feeling like it's not a success, you know, really judging it harshly um, because they didn't know, because they didn't know what was going on behind closed doors. Um, so I think this is definitely a very clear transparency maybe for the best. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So I'd just like to add one thing about transparency. Sure. And, and, and its relationship to the other kinds of um, legitimacy mm -hmm. mechanisms. So and initially I talked about input, which is citizen representation and political responsiveness, output, which is policy effectiveness and performance, and then throughput, which is a range of things, including accountability, transparency, inclusiveness, openness, and efficacy. And I think what's important to note is that transparency is no substitute for good policy performance, nor is it a substitute for citizen representation or political responsiveness. If it's good, if there's serious transparency, then it just makes it much easier and better. And it being citizen representation and, and, and participation moving straight through to good performance. If there's no transparency, if governments are perceived as unaccountable, as incompetent, as engaged in secrecy, as biased and unfair or oppressive, then of course that undermines both citizens' perceptions of their representation and of course their perceptions of policy performance. So in a way you have to have transparency. You have to, to ensure that you've got good input and output, good political input and good policy performance. Bottom line is that one needs transparency to make the other things work, but it alone is not enough.
right? You can sort of start to see where, you know, wild conspiracy theories can start to form if you don't know what's going on, right? You you can begin to build all of these stories or you can begin to build, you know, um, you know, outlandish ideas on, you know, maybe a little factoid because if you don't have the full information, then, you know, humans are, you know, curious and they want to know particularly how they're being governed. And so, you know, I think that that's where a lot of these spaces for, um, you know, conspiracy theories kind of open is if you don't know what's going on, you're going to make some things up. <laughs> Absolutely right. And, and, and that's why, and, and, and for this, I think both the U.S. has been problematic in terms of not figuring out how to deal with digital platforms. There's no real regulation of digital platforms. They regulate themselves. And for a very long time, until you know, the past month or so, uh, conspiracy theories were allowed to flourish for the most part. And that has undermined faith in government transparency because it has led to massive conspiracy theories. What we've seen consistently in the EU is an attempt to question the big online platforms and to push for some kind of regulation, which of course they can't do on their own. So what one would need is to protect citizen faith in government transparency and to reduce the hold of conspiracy theories is for the EU and the US actually to get together to figure out what would be the best way in which to regulate online conversations or sort of the social media in ways that ensure that that people can begin to trust the information they receive again. All right. Um, well, this has been a really fascinating conversation, Vivian. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, well, thank you for having me. We want to thank our featured guest, Manchu Shah, author of Capturing Institutional Change, and Vivian Schmidt, author of Europe's Crisis of Legitimacy. As always, we would like to thank the crew of the Oxford Comment for their continued assistance on each episode. Be sure to follow OUP Academic on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, and YouTube to stay up to date on upcoming podcast episodes. Also, please don't forget to subscribe to the Oxford Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. I'm Caitlin Phillips. Thank you for listening. <laughs>